This is Perspectives, the show where a conversation about our differences will show us how much we actually have in common. I'm Condis Presley. Culture is a term that refers to a large and diverse set of intangible aspects of social life. Things like values, beliefs, systems, communication, practices that people share in common and can be used to define them as a collective. Culture is something to be preserved. And my guest today is an expert at preserving culture. As Jewish families prepare for Passover, many wonder how best to pass down and preserve Jewish identity in an increasingly secularized culture. Miriam Udell is a rabbi, a mother, and professor of Yiddish language and literature at Emory University. She's the author of Never Better, the modern Jewish picaresque, and I don't think I said that right, but it won the National Jewish Book Award in 2017. And her new book is Honey on the Page, a treasury of Yiddish children's literature. Miriam Udell, welcome to Perspectives. Thank you so much, Condes. It is a pleasure to be with you. What has motivated you to capture and preserve Jewish culture for future generations? So it started out kind of selfishly. I began working on this book in 2013 when I was a mother of two children, pretty young at the time, and a language instructor. I was teaching Yiddish language pretty regularly at Emory at that time. And I wondered with, with both of those roles, was there ever any literature written for children in Yiddish? It had, studying children's literature had always been a part of my language education in Spanish, in Hebrew, in Arabic, but never in Yiddish. And I wanted to know, was there anything I could pass on to my own children from the Yiddish tradition? And as soon as I started looking into what was available, I realized that there was an embarrassment of riches, that there were almost a thousand freestanding story books and anthologies, and there were several periodicals, some of which had print runs for decades, and it looked like nobody was really doing very much with them, and that they hadn't been made available to English language readers, and somebody was going to have to take this on, and I kind of felt like, well, why not me? So the, the information you're saying was there, but there was a gap in translation and a gap in distribution, and you said, I'm the person because I want this for my family. Let's make it available to many families. That's right. That I was going to build a bridge to this part of the Jewish past, of the American past in many instances, um, through the work of translation. Because yes, I did want it for my own family. And I felt like I knew a lot of other people who would be interested in having access to these stories because they're really a portrait of Jewish life and of parts of American life and Eastern European life and even Latin American life, especially in the 1920s and 30s when the vast majority of these stories were being written. Talk to us about your research. And as you said, it was somewhat easy to find that there were things that were out there, but that just had not been gathered, translated and put together so that it was easy for people to consume. The first part of the research was understanding and kind of mapping out the world of these stories. And I very quickly realized how much that had to do with the ideological map of 
the Jewish world and particularly the Jewish left a hundred years ago, because these stories really grew out of a political culture that gave rise to political parties, to mutual aid societies, to cultural leagues, and then to schools, whether they were full day schools in Eastern Europe or after schools in North America, in the United States, Mexico, and Canada. Jewish children would go to public school in the morning, and then in the afternoon, they might go to a Yiddish school that had a kind of a, an ideology that I would describe as just Yiddish in the way that some people say today that they're just Jewish, that, the, that they wanted to preserve Yiddish language above all. Some of them might go to a school that identified as socialist. Some of them might attend a school that identified as communist. And some of them might go to a school that identified as Zionist and believed that the best possible future for the Jewish people was in the historic land of Israel. So those schools might teach Yiddish alongside Hebrew starting in the elementary years. But whatever the particular situation was, these schools needed reading material, both for use in the school and during the child's leisure time at home. And that was really the genesis of this Yiddish children's literature. How would you characterize the stories and the literature discovered that you've assembled and put together in Honeycomb on the page? So it's incredibly diverse and it's diverse because it was published on four different continents over the course of a long 20th century. It's diverse ideologically in the ways that I've just mentioned. It's also diverse because of the authorship. We have men writing, we have women writing, not in the same numbers, but definitely with the same quality. And um, the authors ranged from the kind of celebrity name in lights of Yiddish culture to educators who were in the classroom with students every day and really had their finger on the pulse of child culture of, of the time. Um, so that creates a, a collage of different viewpoints, different concerns, different priorities, different aesthetic styles that they might be bringing to the project of writing for children. And all of that diversity is represented in Honey on the Page. How much fun was this for you to put this together? <laughs> it was a lot of fun. So I jokingly say that I've read more bad Yiddish children's literature than anyone else currently alive. And it's true that some of what I slogged through really would not work for kids and families today, but there was so much that was excellent. And every time I discovered a gem, there was, first of all, that exciting thrill of discovering something new in the archive that, you know, nobody's looked at for 80 years, perhaps, but also the excitement of figuring out how I was going to be able to bring this into English and to build that bridge of translation. What, what fun or relevant idioms or slang would I be able to employ in English that would represent the, the energy of the original document. What do the stories that you've translated teach Jewish children about 
culture and heritage and living? Broadly speaking, they teach not only Jewish children, but I would say every child, how to be a mensch, which is the Yiddish term um, that literally means a man or a person, but in American Yiddish, it's really come to signify a good person, a decent human being, a person who, who lives with integrity, who has a set of ideals that they tr strive to live up to. And so the, the book is organized in a way that moves from the most distinctively Jewish content about Jewish holidays, history, and heroes outward toward an ever more broad address to humanity generally, to experiences and truths that are really universal. So there is this kind of um, universal attention to themes like generosity and solidarity, what it means to be a good person and living in a society with diverse others. And of course, there's also a special focus on Jewish holidays and how the themes of the holidays might connect with those broader universal messages to Jewish history, including the darker days of violence against the Jewish community during the Spanish Inquisition, for example, um, and ways that we can still take lessons by facing that history squarely, we can take lessons and hope to be able to move toward a better and more just, more equitable and more compassionate world as we move forward as a society. So let me ask you this. People of color are especially sensitive to the idea of cultural appropriation. So would it be okay, because I don't know, for someone like me to in conversation with somebody else, use the word, if I'm talking about our conversation today, you know, when we were talking and she says, we can all, she wants us all to be, you know, to be a mensch. And I don't know if I said it right. And I got to ask you how to spell it. But is that something that would be offensive? Because I wouldn't want to do that. Not at all. It does not have any of the fraught history of other, you know, words that we could think of that are, that are painful words um, from African-American history, from Jewish history, from all kinds of ethnic groups that have been uh, kind of negatively stereotyped. No, mensch is there for the taking for anybody. It's something we can all say, and I hope it's something that we can all find our ways to do. We're in this really unique time in American history where there is a renewed social justice, racial justice revolution that is ongoing. Uh, in the work that you've done, what does the literature that you've pulled together uh, help younger children and older children sort through these big issues? Because you have to start explaining things like this to kids when they're young so that they get it better when they're, as they mature. That's right. So I think one of the contributions that this book makes is to make a form of difference visible in an honest way. Um, it is an honest grappling with what Jewish difference meant throughout the 20th century, while also making some gestures toward 
understanding other kinds of difference that were visible, certainly on the American scene and also some other places globally. So um, there's, if, if it's okay, I'm going to talk about something that's not quite in the book. And what I mean by that is that in 1935, the International Workers Order, which was a communist aligned group that had a network of schools, published a book by Haver Paver, which was the pen name of an author named Gershon Einbinder called Lobzik, Stories of a Clever Pup or Tales of a Clever Pup. And there were 12 Lobzik stories originally published in 1935. And I've translated two of them in the book. And one of them is the adoption story of how this adorable mutt Lobzik comes into the home of Beryl, the sewing machine operator, and his wife, Molly, and his son, Mulek, and his daughter, Riftele, and how they come to adopt this dog and start having adventures with him as if he were some sort of a leftist lassie. And then I also include the story of Lobzik and the strike, when, when Lobzik sneaks along with the family to protest on the picket line at Beryl's sweatshop when the owners have decided to extend the workday until 9 p.m., which is obviously going to be unsustainable for families. But there's another story in that book, which I've now translated, it didn't make it into Honey in the Page, called Lobzik and the Black Boy, where Lobzik bites one of Mulek, the son of the family, one of Mulek's best friends from public school, a little boy named Noach, which is the Yiddish for Noah. And Noah is an African-American child who's come over to play at Mulek's house one day, and Lobzik bites him kind of reflexively, unthinkingly. And the children do what they understand the adults to do. They hold a tribunal and they decide that they need to sanction Lobzik, who is an extremely social doggy. And for a week, they ostracize him. Nobody's going to talk to Lobzik for a week. So that he has to learn his lesson that you don't go around biting children who look different, who are a different color, who are in any way visibly different from, from your family. And it was really important to the author, to Javer Paver, to embed lessons about race and racial difference and solidarity and friendship across those differences throughout the Lobzik stories. Um, so that's an example of the kinds of gesture that this literature is trying to make toward a broader American society. From what you described, Miriam, these stories not only are impactful and educational to Jewish children, but again, are universal in themes that can be enjoyed by kids of any culture. That's what I'm hoping. Um, there's, a, there's an idea that children in their literature need mirrors and they need windows. They need to see themselves reflected. And it's important that we have diverse bookshelves so that they can find representations of themselves but also so that they can catch a glimpse into the lived experience of all of the other cultures that are around us. And you know, this week it feels again, particularly urgent here in Atlanta to be able to catch those glimpses into the lives of our neighbors. And so I hope that this book will find its place on 
a, a school bookshelf on a library bookshelf that is oriented toward diversity, equity, and inclusion. What is the age group that Honey on the Page is, is translated for? So that is going to depend in part on the way that, that it's being used. For an independent reader, I would say that it starts being appropriate somewhere between eight and 10 years old. And for a child who is reading in the company of a sympathetic adult who might be reading, who might be read to out loud during this long pandemic when we're baking together and gardening together and maybe reading as a family in a way that we used to in the olden times, um, or for a child who is reading independently, but then talking over the stories with a parent, with a grandparent, with a teacher, then maybe that, that age could come down a little bit. I have a five-year-old who was four when the book was released, and he loves being read some of these stories, and some of them we're saving for when he's a little older. Is there a story, Miriam, that you could share with us today? Sure. Katya Molodovsky, who is one of the big names in Yiddish letters of the 20th century, wrote a group of stories for children about the old world. She was already living in New York at the time, but she wrote these kind of old-timey stories, and they embed very deep values. And because one of the values that really permeates the book is generosity and charitable giving, I want to share this story because I think it's a really beautiful instance of that. I won't read the whole thing, but I'll just let you know how it starts out and then give you a sense of where it goes. This is called The Baker and the Beggar. Once upon a time, there was a baker with his own shop who made bread, rolls, pretzels, bagels, and challahs for Shabbos. His wife would tie up her hair in a scarf and knead the dough, and the children would twist the bagels into circles. The whole town delighted in their pretzels and bagels. Even the birds would swoop down from the sky in order to catch the crumbs, and their tail feathers twitched with pleasure. Every Friday, poor Jews would come to the bakery to beg food for Shabbos. That was the custom of the time, the time of our grandparents. The baker would give them a roll, a bagel, a pretzel, whatever he could spare, and no one left empty-handed. One of the poor Jews had very special eyes, so radiant that they sent forth beams of light. The baker liked him best of all, and each Friday he would give the man an entire challah for Shabbos. So it went, week after week, Friday after Friday, over many years. The baker became so accustomed to the man's visits that he would look forward to them. He would hand the beggar the challah personally and say, eat in good health and may all be well with you. The man never thanked him. He just smiled with his bright eyes and replied, may you live long and may God repay you. One Friday, that happened to also be the eve of a holiday, the bakery was crowded with customers who pushed and crushed against each other. This one wanted a hollow with poppy seeds, that one a loaf of white bread, but make sure it's sweet. The baker, his wife, and their children were so busy that by day's end, they could hardly stand. Along came the bright-eyed man. He saw the great rush, so he didn't want to bother the baker just then. He stood there for a while and then left without saying so much as, as a word. 
So that beggar stops coming and everyone forgets about him and years go by. And then one Friday, there's a fire at the bakery that consumes the entire shop and the apartment over the shop where the family lives. And they're left with nothing just a few hours before the Sabbath is due to arrive. And just at that time, that erstwhile beggar comes back and he's no longer a beggar and he is there to repay his debt. He's kept careful track of exactly the value of all of the challahs that he's been given over the years. And he insists on handing that precise amount of money back to the baker. And what would, what, what can I tell you? It's exactly enough to replace the bakery and the home and everything that the family had and has lost. So it's really a powerful message that what we think of as charity and charitable giving is really more a matter of justice and of balancing a ledger so that it's really equal and fair. Talk to us about the significance of the collection's title, Honey on the Page. Sure, so in the schools, the informal schools that children and particularly little boys attended in Jewish Eastern Europe, the custom was that on the first day of class, the teacher would smear each child's primer, each child's school book with a dash of honey. And the child would lick up that honey from the page and incorporate its sweetness in order to make all of the future learning that they would do in that school just as sweet as the honey. And that's the sweetness that I wanted to give to contemporary readers with Honey on the Page. How can readers access a copy of this book? Anywhere that books are sold, um, and certainly by visiting my website, miriamudell.com with links. And overall, Miriam, what is it that you are hoping readers, whether they be Jewish readers or readers of other cultures, take away from these many wonderful stories you've, you've collected and translated? So I hope that they take both the enjoyment of the story's language and also the lessons that they have to teach all of us, which are still very relevant. There are stories here, believe it or not, there's a pandemic story. There are stories about economic justice, about racial justice. And I wish that some of these stories actually read more like artifacts of a previous time. But the fact is that so many of them are still contemporary today and that the lessons that they teach are lessons that we as a society are still very much learning. And I hope that this book can offer a sweet way to help us do that. I believe that it will. The book is Honey on the Page, a treasury of Yiddish children's literature. Miriam Udell, professor of Yiddish language and literature at Emory University. I appreciate your time today. This is this has been a wonderful conversation and it so speaks to the fact that representation matters. Thank you so much, Congress. It was really a delight to speak with you.
Perspectives is a community and public affairs program crafted with you in mind. If there's a guest you'd like to hear interviewed or a perspective you think should be explored, let me know. If you're old school, just write me. 1601 West Peachtree Street, Northeast, Atlanta, Georgia, 30309. Or message me via social media. I'm Condis Presley on Facebook, Condo29 on Twitter and Instagram. Thanks for listening. Be sure to listen again next week at this very same time as we examine another perspective. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.